0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome, welcome to this new episode of the History of Science podcast series for the New Books Network. I have uh, the privilege of sitting uh, today with uh, Dr. Jacqueline Dufflin and to discuss with her about uh, her new book, uh, COVID nineteen: A uh, History. Uh, that is uh, just have to be. It's uh, just uh, uh, new publications on uh, the uh, history of the current uh, pandemic. Uh, So before uh, uh, starting discussing with uh, uh, with Dr Duffin about her work, uh, I would like just to invite her to uh, introduce herself to our uh, listeners and uh, uh, tell something a little bit about uh, her research interest and uh, how uh the uh, idea of writing a book on uh, uh, the history of uh, the current pandemic uh, uh,
0: make uh, sense Uh, well thank you so much Corinne I am a Canadian I'm a hematologist a specialist in blood diseases and I am a historian Uh, I became a historian from studying at the Sorbonne in uh, Paris And I was very lucky to find a job in Canada where I was a historian in the medical school of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And I held that job for 30 years, uh, teaching medical students and um, doing my research. I have uh, published 10 other books and uh, about 100 articles in the history of medicine. I'm old now. (laughs) And I, I retired five years ago. But uh, I find retirement is a wonderful state for a historian because we can keep doing our work. We can uh, keep working in our laboratories, which are archives and libraries. So since I retired, I published four books. This, this one is the fourth. And I wasn't expecting to write a history of COVID-19. Uh, but one day I was called by the editor of my last book, which was something completely different. I had written a major study of an expedition led by Canada to Easter Island back in the 1960s. And uh, that had not been studied before. And I managed to find some of the people who'd been on the expedition and I managed to find their records and McGill Queens University Press published that book. So back in November, 2020, Uh, The phone rang, and it was my publisher suggesting that I write a history of COVID-19. Now, listeners will remember that in November 2020, the pandemic had really just begun. It was not even a year old since we had recognized it uh, as a global problem. And my first reaction was, well, it's not over. You can't write a history of something that's not over. He argued with me and said, well, I think it's time to look back. And I was flattered because normally as a historian, your listeners may know that we write our books and it's very hard to get them published once we've written them. But here was somebody suggesting that I actually start writing the book. I was already a volunteer at our local public health unit uh, our, our unit had called to volunteers asking us to contact people who had been exposed to COVID-19 to warn them to isolate and explain how to isolate. So I was doing that work and there was a lockdown, so I couldn't say I was busy. And I asked to have one weekend to think about whether or not I would do it. And I began thinking about histories of things that are not over. We have lots of histories of things that are not over. When you think about it, we have history of food, history of religion, history of Canada, of China. Uh, These things are not over and histories get written at a certain point in time. So that was very flattering. I also have been a disease history person. At the Sorbonne in Paris, I studied with Mirko Gramek, who um, was a famous historian of medicine who was an expert on the history of disease. He'd written a history of diseases in the ancient Greek world. And while I was his student, he began writing a history of AIDS. This was in the middle of the 1980s when AIDS was a new pandemic. And I realized that he was at the end of his career and was writing about a new pandemic disease. And the more I thought about it, I realized it was almost destiny that I, at the end of my career, should write about the next new pandemic disease. So after thinking about it for the weekend, I agreed uh, to write this history. I should Uh, also... Sorry, sorry. sorry. Okay. I should also mention that uh, my publisher reminded me that I had published a book about the history of SARS Which uh, was not a pandemic, but it was certainly an epidemic in several countries, including Canada and China. And uh, that that book was published back in two thousand and six. So he had he had leaned on me a little bit because he said, "Well, you've already written this one book. Why not? Why don't you write another?"
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. This makes uh, makes perfectly uh, perfectly sense, and uh, uh, indeed, well. Uh, for example i don't know if uh, how many of our listeners knows that uh, are aware of the fact that uh, we are in the midst of the seventh uh, cholera pandemic but well of course it's not uh, like broadcasted or mediatized as the covid-19 pandemic but that is uh, not a reason uh, uh, not to talk discuss uh, and uh, reflect historically on uh, on uh, uh, cholera and uh, so uh, by reading your uh, your uh, your book well uh, when uh, one thing that uh, so uh, at the beginning of 2020 the covid-19 uh, was seemed to be a problem like uh, limited to a uh, region of the world so a problem concerning just the east asian countries specifically china uh, has the rest of the world underestimated
0: the potential for the virus uh, to spread worldwide there are two answers to that question one is yes and i think that would apply to the vast majority of people living in the rest of the world but the other answer is no Um, public health experts knew that this virus had the potential to spread scientists knew that it had the potential to spread. In fact, uh, I found an article written by scientists in Mexico in 2017, delivering an argument about why the next pandemic would be caused by a coronavirus. That was just shortly before uh, we saw the rise of SARS-CoV-2. I should also say that historians recognize the potential of this virus to affect the whole world. Because if it was spreading rapidly in whatever country it began, it could spread rapidly anywhere. But the people who held that opinion were probably the minority in terms of numbers of population. Uh, They they lived in their world of science, of clinical medicine, of public health. And and there were warnings. There were definitely warnings. Uh, As early as uh, late December, 2019, that the rest of the world could be affected, uh, but it was hard to convince the majority of people that precautions had to be taken.
1: Yeah this is a, it's a definitely I think probably one of the light motive of this uh, of this pandemic. the gap between uh, uh, the knowledge and advice uh, delivered by uh, medical experts uh, by uh, healthcare. Uh, Experts uh, and uh, the the rest of the uh, of the uh, of the world and uh, well uh, something that uh, actually well was uh, mm, uh, quite uh, surprising in the sense that uh, when when the COVID nineteen uh, when COVID nineteen pandemic reached what well, the Europe and uh, North America. Uh, It was quite staggering to witness uh, at uh, very different uh, um, reactions and uh, management of uh, a uh, uh, of the same menace to uh, healthcare by uh, governments uh, by states uh, of the global north. So, and uh, it was a. like uh, embarrassing sometimes to see countries like uh, the United States uh, giving uh, very poor uh, uh, responses to uh, the COVID-19 menace. And uh, anyways, it was, uh, so a question that uh, really uh, raised was uh, what have been the determinants of uh, such different ways of uh, responding to a- common menace?
0: Well, um, these differences, if you talk about within the United States, are, are to do with politics. The same in Canada, to do with political stance. Um, these countries are democracies and they elect governments that reflect their values and their priorities. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes the advice of healthcare experts and public health experts uh, was unwelcome because it would require a commitment of time, money, and freedom that uh, people just didn't like. And depending on the stance of the leaders in the various jurisdictions, uh, whether or not the advice was followed was um, was in, in the large part politically determined. Uh, one example, leaving aside North America for a moment, uh, comes from Scandinavia, where at the beginning of the pandemic, Sweden uh, accepted the idea that if it was going to come and be um, affecting everybody, then let's just let it happen, and we will all develop herd immunity, this this word that kept uh, being trotted out back in 2020, herd immunity, uh, so just let everybody get sick. And if you look at the number of cases in Sweden compared to all the other Scandinavian countries, and this is during the 2020 year, you will see that Sweden had many more cases than those other countries, which maybe they were prepared to accept. But what is even more shocking is that they had many more deaths. Because all of those cases, there were so many cases that it overwhelmed the hospitals. So people who got sick didn't have access to the hospital facilities to look after them. And so, yes, there were lots more cases, but there were proportionately even more deaths because of the surge of cases. And uh, that little example from Scandinavia in 2020 uh, shows how without Political support behind the recommendations of the public health experts, uh, there can be really serious problems. Back to the example of the United States, there's a a mesmerizing website. Um, I will send you the link and maybe you can post it into the podcast uh, that has been posted up showing which states in the United States have the most cases of COVID. And it's, it runs through time. So along the bottom, the, the date is changing and the number of cases is increasing, but the states are each colored by whether or not they're Democratic or Republican. And given where COVID arrived in the United States at the important border airport uh, states of California and, and New York, you see blue states at the beginning, but slowly, 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 all of the top states are Republican. And uh, when I was trying to explain to some students recently uh, about what what factors cause people to get COVID, I talked about um, socioeconomic status. I talked about race. I talked about geography, where you were. And I talked about politics, because it seems in the United States, if you live in a state that is governed by Republicans, you have a higher chance of catching COVID. The the problem for me, I'm a doctor, and I don't want to see people get sick, and I don't want to see the hospitals overwhelmed. And I accept that many people who caught COVID are not going to be very sick and are not going to die. But they have a responsibility to everyone else. I, I believe that. But I accept that certain political philosophies don't believe that that they believe that we should all be free to do exactly what we want. And uh, so it's to do with a basic attitude of kindness and whether or not you feel responsible for the vulnerable people in your world, the older people, the people who have other diseases. And uh, so it was very heartbreaking. Just just to conclude that observation, the idea of herd immunity was very attractive. And England also, uh, under Boris Johnson, got the idea that perhaps herd immunity was the right way to go. We have discovered that with COVID, there is no such thing as herd immunity. The virus kept mutating and you can catch COVID more than once. You can catch it two, three, four times. And so herd immunity is not not the answer to this problem. At the beginning, the lockdowns, the social distancing and the public health rules for hygiene were the only way to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, Well, in, uh, in uh,
1: respect to what happened, and uh, well, it's, I think it's currently happening in the United States, I think that this pandemic uh, pointed out uh, a great uh, big misunderstanding of the principle of uh, political liberalism in the sense that uh, political liberalism uh, states that, uh, well, my liberty ends when yours begins. And uh, uh, if my liberty puts you in danger, the state is allowed to, allowed to intervene in order to prevent harm. And uh, uh, the fact that uh, the conservative uh, uh, party in the United States uh, made a a, uh, campaign on uh, the defense of liberty in uh, avoiding COVID uh, policies, it was just, uh, well, uh, well, it pointed out a a kind of uh, an aspect of uh, the political life in the United States that uh, really need to get uh, to be rethought
0: and re uh, reassessed. Uh, yes, you make a good point. Um, this definition of liberty uh, includes the right to hurt another person. It's it's very offensive, and. Uh, The message just doesn't get communicated to uh, people who espouse these values. Um, We're talking a lot about the United States, but these kinds of attitudes exist everywhere. Uh, And uh, your listeners may know that Canada had a huge, uh, what they called freedom convoy, uh, that came to Ottawa in February 2022 and parked gigantic trucks in front of the House of Commons, uh, which is our federal government, and blocked this road and blocked many other roads in the city of Ottawa and uh, uh, banged their horns very, very loudly for three full weeks before uh, the police and authorities were able to uh, drag them away. Why were they there? They were there, they said, uh, because they objected to the mandate for vaccines, but the mandate that a truck driver should be vaccinated was an American law. And and of course you will understand that trucks go back and forth across the Canadian American border all the time. Even when the border was closed for a whole year, trucks were allowed to go because we needed to keep supplies going. So um, the United States made a rule that all truck drivers should be mandated and more than 90% of Canadian truck drivers accepted it and they were vaccinated. So um, this small minority of very angry people decided this was the fault of the Canadian government and um, added to their agenda were people who wanted to overthrow the government and uh, were accusing the government of all sorts of things that the government hadn't done. And uh, it it was a very distressing time for the citizens of Ottawa, but also for the country They also set up blockades at important border crossings uh, between Canada and the United States uh, that were really quite dangerous. And the police finally were able to move in and make arrests. And they discovered that some of these protesters who do have the right to protest were armed with guns. And there has to be a place where you draw the line. It was heartbreaking to witness that.
1: No, I can. uh I can absolutely uh, imagine. And uh, well, pandemics sometimes are kind of chemical react- reagent that uh, like uh, <laughs> uh, allows uh, problems that are kind of dormant uh, in uh, society in uh, normal time to uh, to uh, to make it to the uh, to the surface. I w- I would like to discuss uh, uh with you about the question of well about quarantines and lockdowns because uh, well they these have been uh, the uh, like measures that have been adopted more or less uh, worldwide uh, as uh, the most uh, effective uh, uh, ways in, uh, according to governments and, uh, and public authorities, uh, to put the situation under control. And uh, what, three, three years after the, the, the outbreak of COVID-19, uh, what kind of uh, assessment can we, can we do about the, the uh, effectiveness of, this, uh, of these measures?
0: Yes, I knew you would ask me that question because it's a a very sensitive issue, and uh, especially now in your part of the world. First of all, I think it's really, really important for people to understand that when we get a new new virus and it is spreading rapidly, even if it isn't yet global, even even if it's only a, a local epidemic, And the virus is new. There is nothing else you can do but lockdown. And I say that because when a virus is new, we don't know how lethal it is. So we don't know what proportion of people affected will die. SARS, the the first uh, coronavirus outbreak uh, back in 2003, was very lethal, more lethal than uh, COVID. Uh, So when you don't know how lethal it is, You have to imagine that it could be very lethal. So the lethality. The next thing you need to find out is how easily does it spread? That is, And how does it spread? Is it by contact, by droplets, by fluid? None of these things are known when the virus first appears. And the final thing, which may actually be even more important, is uh, the fact that we will not know if people can have the disease, but have no symptoms, which is in fact the case with COVID. We, we discovered fairly early on that you could, you could be a carrier. And even though you felt completely well and had no symptoms at all, you could be spreading the disease. So without knowing that, lockdown is the only solution because it prevents people from coming into contact with each other. It says, everybody pause, take a breath, wait to see what will happen so as time rolled along and it was impressive during covid how quickly these things could get sorted uh we had some interesting case studies that helped us answer those questions uh the most obvious one being cruise ships where people were on holiday they thought they were going to have a lovely time and unfortunately they somebody got sick and then the epidemiologists afterwards were able to track how the virus spread to all of these people who were localized in one place at a certain time. Um, They tried to confine the passengers to their rooms, but the air conditioning systems were bringing air throughout the entire ship. So uh, the disease would spread that way. Uh, They learned a lot about that. They also learned that there were asymptomatic carriers. And fairly quickly, they had a rough idea of how lethal it would be. And it seemed at the beginning that roughly 3% of people who caught it would die, uh, depending on your age. But the next thing that happened that was really very remarkable, and I don't think it's been given enough credit in the discussions I see in the media, is the fact that tests were developed really quickly. With Chinese scientists working with other scientists in the world uh, to make a test that could identify whether or not somebody had had the disease. That was genius. And when you think about previous uh, uh, pandemics, uh, for example, influenza of 100 years ago, there was no test. Nobody knew who was carrying the disease, uh, but we were able to be informed about who had the disease and who didn't. And so the information about the lethality, whether or not you could spread it without having any symptoms, and um, also the the ability of the disease to spread uh, were things that were learned very quickly in the pandemic. But the only thing to do when those things are unknown is lockdown. Yeah, no, and absolutely. I, so, sorry. I, yeah, sorry. Um, and I say that because we know people will get sick and if people get sick they need they need medical care and compared to 100 years ago in the influenza we have lots of wonderful things we have intensive care units we have intubation we have respirators for ventilating people we have oxygen in bottles nobody had any of that 100 years ago but to get access to those things you need not everybody to get sick all at once you need perhaps everybody will get sick, but they shouldn't get sick all at once. And and a lockdown is the only way to keep a handle on that. So uh, that is the origin of the expression flatten the curve. We can keep people alive, but only if they have access to medication. And there is a limit for hospitals uh, in caring for people. One of the things that was fascinating in the early pandemic in your part of the world was how quickly China was able to build those emergency field hospitals huge emergency field hospitals that were well equipped to look after all the people who were sick uh they did that faster and more effectively than many countries in Europe and North America
1: yes and this is this definitely something that is acknowledged and uh, uh and uh, this is a is a a part of uh, the history of the current pandemic that, I mean, all of my students are very aware of and proud of and uh, by uh, and they uh, with good reasons, whether I'm not sure in uh, the part of the world I I was born and uh, and I worked for many uh, years, which is Western Europe. People are aware of the uh, of the amazing uh, uh, efforts and results that uh, were accomplished here in uh, China in uh, the early uh, stages of uh, of, the, uh, of the pandemic, and uh, uh, well, uh, something that uh, well, my, my students are quite uh, uh, puzzled when I tell them that well, quarantine uh, what kind of so the kind of measures that were around during the Black Death, and uh, there is actually the kind of measures that are around now in the twenty first century, and that kind that. Of, comes that we we, we <laughs> can't do any better i mean <laughs> and uh and then the, the well the the thing is that what well, we can do a lot better but uh, that uh, doesn't uh, prevent us to keep on using uh, a uh older remedy that it's still effective <laughs> and and speaking about uh, like uh something that we can do now with uh like uh The uh, the uh, the means that uh, the the the, that we have at our disposal. I I would like to ask you questions about about vaccines because, uh, well, something that uh, definitely this pandemic uh, has, uh, well, I think we will down to history for it's uh, how quickly uh, effective and safe vaccines uh, have been made at uh, uh, been produced and uh, and uh, and uh, distributed. and uh, well, this, of course, is a question that uh, is, is a topic that goes uh, with uh, questions like uh, vaccine hesitancy because I believe that uh, a lot of people were not kind of uh, uh, keen on trusting the effectiveness effectiveness of these vaccines because uh, they came out really, really fast. But on the other hand, I was uh, intrigued by uh, the fact that in your book you use a a. a um, Uh, expressions like uh, vaccine wars, uh, vaccine nationalism, vaccine diplomacy, which is kind of a a political vocabulary that uh, it's uh, associated with, uh, uh, which is used to describe uh, a scientific accomplishment. So I would like to
0: ask you uh, the reason of the choice of uh, of uh, these words. Yeah, well... The vaccines came along very quickly, and the speed, as you said, is probably one of the reasons people hesitated to accept them because they were afraid they were untried, untested. Uh, on the other hand, there were people who believed that somehow the vaccine was going to solve it completely and get rid of the uh, the, the virus. So. Uh, uh we had we had two things going on people who craved the vaccine and wanted it as quickly as possible and people who were never going to be convinced to take it for whatever reason um yes it was a triumph of science that so many different vaccines were made and and they have quite different properties uh the mrna ones are are quite famous and are widely used here in canada But um, there are others that use uh, viral vector. That is an older method, which is also very effective. And uh, and there are others that use chemical approaches. Uh, All of these approaches were brewing prior to the pandemic. People knew how to make vaccines. But as we kept being told back in 2020, oh, a vaccine will take 10 to 15 years to develop it always takes a long time. One of the things I noticed about uh, the mRNA vaccines is that they are made to attack the spike protein, which are the little knobs that we see on the coronavirus sticking up. And if you look in the medical literature, you will find that there were many scientists doing work on spike protein after SARS. sars being another coronavirus. So they were they were poised. Of course, the research in that uh, area increased enormously with the advent of COVID, but there was already ground laid scientifically for that achievement. The same with the other vaccines, which were uh, engineered on exquisite, well-understood science that was older, of course, than the pandemic. Uh, And there was also a will to to make these vaccines, uh, a tremendous scientific and industrial achievement. So the words vaccine wars, vaccine nationalism, vaccine diplomacy were not mine. I didn't invent them. I borrowed them from other people. Uh, The wars are between nations Trying to have access to the vaccine for their citizens, which is what they want their governments to do. Every country looks to their government to protect them. And so, of course, the government has a duty to its citizens to get vaccines for them. Uh, The very sad thing about the vaccine wars was that rich countries were getting the vaccines much faster than uh, developing nations. Uh, It was almost shameful. And from a public health perspective, it was almost ridiculous, because it you can't control a f- pandemic by controlling it only in one place. If you vaccinate everybody in North America, and don't vaccinate anyone in Africa, you will keep keep having this disease going on and on, and you will be leaving uh, foyer for the virus to mutate, making it likely to escape the protection of vaccines. So a much more equitable approach would have been useful. Vaccine nationalism is related to that where uh, countries that make vaccines want their citizens to take their vaccines. And um, I know that there was a Chinese vaccine. There were several Chinese vaccines made right early in the beginning. Uh, Russia had its own vaccines. In fact, the first vaccine announced and used on the public was uh, a Russian vaccine um it it's not clear how well it had been trialed uh before it was released and the the volunteers who received it were part of a trial, uh, but each country ha- had greater trust it seemed in their own products, uh, which was an unusual sort of phenomenon because when you look at the pharmaceutical market uh in the world it is it is a global thing and uh an individual drug can, can originate from many different countries. The raw material, the putting it together, uh, we see that. And and I've been following the drug shortage now for more than twelve years. It, it's very interconnected, but suddenly with this crisis, countries became very nationalistic about it. Canada wasn't making any vaccines, so we we had to wait. And we had uh, we bought a lot of vaccines in advance because we're a lucky country that has financial resources. And uh, so we we expressed our willingness and gave money to companies uh, to help them build the vaccines that they promised they would sell to us. Uh, this was a sore point at the beginning of the pandemic for our government because uh, Canadians suddenly woke up and realized that our pharmaceutical industry was almost non-existent. Uh, I think people hadn't realized that. and And so there was this. Why isn't there? And we need to make all our drugs here in Canada. Uh, I don't think there's a, too much wrong with buying drugs from other countries. If they're doing good quality product, then this is what good business is about. But there there was this nationalism. And then the vaccine diplomacy uh, was about countries being willing to help others. Canada had excess vaccine. Uh, and Uh, had agreed through um, a system that was set up through the World Health Organization, uh, which is an entity of the United Nations, to give its excess vaccines. We, We wanted to buy from everybody. We were ordering more vaccines than we could use as a population because we didn't know which companies would actually produce it. And so when we got more than we needed, we were prepared to give vaccines to developing nations. And Canada did do that the United States to reflect on um, vaccine nationalism versus diplomacy, uh, approved American vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, but it hesitated for a long time to approve AstraZeneca vaccine, which came from England. And it, uh, it didn't approve it, but it had the vaccine. And Eventually, it was willing to give Canada, well, we had to buy it, but they they gave Canada AstraZeneca. In other words, it wasn't approved for Americans, but it was okay for Canadians. Uh, this is a kind of diplomacy where they were being nice to us with something that they didn't want themselves. Um, that's an example of diplomacy because Canada and the United States do try very hard to get along with each other. Um, we also saw that Russia and China were giving vaccines to countries that relied on Russia and China for uh, social and financial support and had already relied on them so that giving vaccines and sharing vaccines became a way of um, advancing their diplomatic goals. Now, you are right that a vaccine is a scientific achievement. There's no doubt about it. But to get the vaccine into the arms of people is political. It always has been. And it it has to do with uh, having access to the vaccine, being able to buy it. And it goes right down to helping people understand why they should risk having the vaccine shot altogether. So it's a communication problem, it's to do with education, it's to do with rollout, and just the actual mechanics of setting up clinics to to get the vaccine to people. The people who needed it most were often disabled and couldn't go to clinics. So there had to be a system for delivering it to them in their homes that is political too. So I, I don't have any problem with juxtaposing political words with scientific ones. No, it makes perfect
1: sense. And well, in, in a, well I, I had a taste of, uh, of this, uh, uh, well, how politi- politics and the science can be intertwined on my own, uh, well, uh, I am a European citizen, citizen of the European Union. When the pandemic started, I was living in Russia. And in order to get the the first shot, the shots, I wanted to be vaccinated when the uh, Sputnik vaccine was Sputnik V was available. But yeah. as I'm not, I am not Russian, I had to do uh, to go to to some clinics in uh, um, to a, one clinic in Moscow that was uh, uh that agreed to vaccinate foreigners to pay for the, the vaccine. But when I moved back to Europe, uh, uh, my status of uh, vaccinated person with a spouting bee was that's not that's acknowledged exciting. because and I had to take two extra shots of Pfizer and one booster shot of uh, Moderna and that now I'm living in China and uh, well <laughs> because the politics uh, of this country is relies more on testing than on vaccines so we have a we ha- must be uh, tested we ha- have a PCR test every day so nobody's asking me to get a Sinovac or an- another shot of uh, of Chinese vaccine, but uh, well, from a scientific viewpoint, it makes no sense to put uh, five to, to make a person to get five shots of vaccines for just the uh, a uh, the sake of uh, where the country where uh, this person have received the vaccine in the
0: first place. You just gave us a beautiful a beautiful account of vaccine nationalism, <laughs> and it's very sad that countries don't trust each other. Because to deal with a pandemic, we need open, transparent communication and trust between countries. Hmm. And that's one of the hardest things to build. It was one of the major obstacles to the sanitary commissions in the 19th century. Countries are afraid to reveal to each other that they have a a disease. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, on the other hand, we have historical examples of uh, cooperation in uh, in times of need, like uh, during the, the Napoleonic War. I mean, France and the United Kingdom, well, they were cooperating with each other in order to make uh, available, uh, well, vaccines against smallpox. Or so during the Cold War, uh, Soviet scientists and uh, American scientists uh, cooperated in order to produce a, a, a vaccine against uh, against polio. So well, uh, it's history is encouraging in this uh, in this uh, regards so that when uh, a, uh, a greatest menace uh, uh, face uh, uh, when humanity has to face a greatest menace than uh, a political one, uh,
0: people are capable to come uh, to come together and uh, and cooperate. You're right, and I think that the scientists know this. Um, during the Cold War, there was a geophysical year of international cooperation that it's very surprising that uh russian and american scientists worked worked well together there was also um an international biological uh decade in fact where there was international cooperation scientists know this and they do want to cooperate with each other but there there is political mistrust on every level and and the thing with public health is that it relies on science but it also relies on the politics the local politics to to bring forth its recommendations. And uh, this is why we see a patchwork of responses. Uh, Sometimes sometimes it is encouraging. On some level, it's almost a miracle that we have a World Health Organization. And it's a tragedy that in the midst of the early pandemic, Donald Trump withdrew funding (laughs) for the World Health Organization. Almost as if the messenger is the cause of the problem. It's very difficult to be in those positions. And uh, we have example in Canada uh, of the uh, provincial uh, chief medical officers of health, uh, many of them women in in Canada. And uh, some of them were the darling of the media. Everybody loved them because they were communicating and they were giving a report every day and everybody loved them. And then after a year, they were demonized. And they were evil, <laughs> and people didn't want to listen to them anymore because they were tired of hearing these recommendations.
1: Yeah, that's what well, the 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 question of uh, how uh, the the media have uh, uh, contributed either to uh, spread the the right uh, information and to spread a uh, distorted version vision of uh, of the current pandemic. Well, this is. Uh, Definitely, something that uh, uh, I, I I believe it will be on uh, on in uh, uh, a, to- a topic of interest of uh, sociologists, of historians, of uh, uh, media studies uh, experts for the years to uh, to come. But I, I would like to ask you something about well, uh, beside uh, uh, well, in, in your book you recall that well, if coronavirus is uh, of course a necessary. Cause of COVID nineteen is not a sufficient cause. Uh, that that are other determinants that uh, uh, are uh, key players in uh, uh, in catching the uh, the disease. So, uh, what how like social uh, uh, cultural uh, determinants have uh, played a role in uh, uh, the the spreading of
0: of the the disease? Uh, Yes, that's an excellent question. Uh, You are referring to uh, ideas that come to us from Aristotle in ancient Greece about the idea that uh, a necessary cause is the one that you must have. And sufficient causes are ones that help. So yes, the virus is necessary Uh, but sometimes not sufficient because, for example, if you're in a lockdown and everybody respects the lockdown, it's not going to spread. So sufficient causes include uh, large gatherings of people in close situations with no masks. That will spread the disease and and, and cause the disease. Uh, But there are host factors that are also really important um, to do with the socioeconomic status of uh, people. Uh, For example, when we had lockdown in Canada, we still had grocery stores to supply food. We still had garbage collection in the streets. And those people are not very well paid and they had to go to work. So they couldn't protect themselves to the same extent as everybody else. And the other thing, and this is different in every developed nation, they didn't have sufficient what we call sick pay, where uh, you can be sick and still be paid. Uh, in fact, it's it's not sufficient in Canada. Certainly, it wasn't long enough in any of the provinces to cover the time of the quarantine that was necessary for COVID-19. So these people are so marginal in their socioeconomic status that they can't afford not to go to work even if they are sick. So that that was not a, a good situation and it, it needs to be solved into the future. Um, there was, uh, Toronto is a very big city. It has over 3 million people living in it. And uh, it hesitated for a long time to give a map of the city where COVID was spreading. Uh, partly because it didn't want to stigmatize any neighborhood and it didn't want anybody to have false sense of security if it was low in their neighborhood. They wanted everyone in the whole city to respect the rules. But when they finally agreed to start releasing the neighborhoods where COVID was high, they were always the neighborhoods where uh the housing was cheaper, the rent was lower. Uh, it was where these essential workers who were underpaid and didn't have a lot of benefits uh were living. And that that was worrisome. Now, leaving aside those social factors, there's also the biological factors, and we we knew. We were worried at the beginning that it might be like the influenza, which affected young people more than old people. But it turned out that the people who were most vulnerable and died more frequently were old people. So that also was uneven. Uh, And it was fascinating to me to look at these statistics that we were able to get from uh, OECD and also from World Health uh, about the mortality of old people in different countries. And uh, those who lived in long-term care homes were dying far more frequently than old people in countries where where the old person didn't live in long-term care homes, where old people tended to live in their families still or go home to their villages, and uh, that proclaimed a host factor because age was definitely a factor, but it was also geography where you lived and cultural about how you lived as an older person, uh, whether you would be affected. Uh, So sadly, Canada had a very high mortality rate in its long-term care homes uh, because in our country, uh, first of all, the homes are not not as good as they should be. And uh, the tradition is not to have your grandfather living with you. The tradition is to send the grandfather off to a a long-term care home. Uh, so that that made them vulnerable. So so that's a, a sort of a social but also biological factor because it, it had to apply to the elderly. The other thing we found out very quickly was that people with other diseases such as high blood pressure or sugar, diabetes or obesity uh, were far more vulnerable to the virus than those who were generally healthy. And uh,
1: well, this is uh, well something that the uh... But I, I remember well. Uh, I uh, I am Italian, and when uh, the uh, I'm from uh, my family lives in uh, in uh, Milan, and when the the, the pandemic started, uh, they keep on uh, telling me how uh, doctors in uh, uh, ER uh, emergency rooms that had to make a choice between uh, uh, having given a place in. Uh, uh, Given like access to a ventilator to a, a young person or uh, yes. a person uh, of or age of the 65 or more, and this was a kind of uh, uh, wartime kind of uh, choice that one has to to make. And I, I was completely, completely uh, shocked by by this uh, this level of uh, of of uh, of emergency. And uh, uh, and then well bec- because when uh, when the, the pandemic started I was living in Russia in Russia the question uh, the one one big problem was the question of domestic violence and how women were affected by the pandemic because uh, they couldn't uh, leave their household and uh, uh, because uh, unfortunately domestic domestic violence is a big uh, problem in, in in Russia and it's uh, not very well pursued by by the current uh, legislation well. We also gender was a was a a variable a, a, a that made the difference between uh, how you are going to be affected by by the pandemic or
0: uh, or uh, or not. Yes, that's another of the host factors. We too had um, serious serious uh, problems for women during the pandemic. Yes, domestic violence increased. We did see that too in Canada, Uh, but also uh, stress and mental illness. Uh, Women were very often having to work from home and the schools were closed. Uh, So they were looking after children as well as trying to work or not being able to work, uh, which was a huge problem. We also had uh, and I don't know about uh, Russia or uh, Europe, but we had online schooling which is terrible. It's not It's not fun for kids. I have grandchildren and I tried to help my grandson with his online school. Uh, it, it's very, very hard for children to relate to that. It's terrible for the teachers. And so many of the teachers were women who themselves had children that they were trying to look after. Uh, a huge problem. And um, trying to manage online schooling especially if you had more than one child and only one computer or no computer (laughs) which also was the case uh uh, was an enormous burden on women uh and, and it made them unhealthy it made them sick it made them poor and uh we have just seen released in canada a big report by the Royal society of canada the impact of the pandemic on women the other impact is that often women are in the lower paying jobs without benefits um and uh it unmasked the disproportionate salary differential between women and men who were doing the same tasks as men but paid less uh it needs to be fixed but this these these things are part of the lessons that this pandemic will teach us
1: yeah absolutely and uh and uh well uh, speaking of about uh, uh, speaking of uh, the kind of uh, mm, uh, takeaway that we can uh, get from this pandemic, even if uh, well the, the pandemic is not uh, is not over, so uh, maybe it's it's a bit early. But uh, in uh, we have been uh, in uh, through it uh, for three years, and maybe it's not too early to like. Uh, uh, mm, decide what kind of uh, lessons this uh, uh, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, have uh, taught us. So if we want to make an exercise like of a retrospection, what uh, would be the the main uh, lessons that uh, we can say this
0: pandemic has, has taught us? Yeah, I don't think it's too early to start wondering about that. Uh, the pandemic is not over. Uh, but it's taught us lots of things. We've learned lots of things about that virus already. Um, it, every pandemic has stages. This is not my idea. It, it comes from uh, Charles Rosenberg uh, and others who've written that you know, at first there's panic and denial and chaos, and then there's uh, getting down to doing the hard work to to manage it, and then you get to a stage of uh, new knowledge. And I like to think of the current public health rules, all our public health rules are generated by our previous experience of pandemics in the past. Uh, You were talking to your students about quarantine and how old it is. But it was a discovery. It was something that was learned during uh, medieval plague. And uh, we learned other things when we learned about germs, then we learned about gloves and masks and gowns once we had germ theory. So um, all of these things get discovered and then learned following each pandemic. So with this one the first thing that we've learned is that there will be another pandemic. There will be. We don't know when and we don't know what the pathogen will be, a virus or a bacteria. We don't know. But there will be one. Therefore, we need to be better prepared than we were. And along with that preparation, we need to better trust and communicate with each other. Uh on a national and international scale. So that is a lesson that we've learned. We need to fix the disparities, the social disparities uh, within our societies. Uh, It isn't right that the essential workers who kept us fed and kept us clean with their garbage collection and all uh, are the ones who suffered more. Uh, They need to be better paid, they need, They need resources if they have to go into lockdown so that they will stay in lockdown and not escape because they need money to feed their children. Those things need to be fixed and each country will have to examine uh, their rules for uh, social security into the future. But more internationally, we need to respect the international organizations we've got. Uh, It's unconscionable to me that somebody would blame the World Health Organization when what it is is a clearinghouse for information. It it is an organization that encourages countries to talk to each other and to express what is going on so that collectively decisions can be made. Since we know there will be another pandemic, we need to nurture these organizations, World Health, United Nations, and, and even the financial, World World Trade Organization and OECD. These organizations are essential for the the pharmaceuticals and for the the vaccines. We we need to talk to each other. So we need much more international trust. We also need to look to the climate change and its tremendous impact on biodiversity. Uh, We know that the coronaviruses have leapt across a species barrier. Uh, I know that people argue about all of this, but it seems most likely that it was harbored in bats and it went from bats to humans, perhaps through pangolins or an intermediary species. But why Why did it do that and why did it happen now? And uh, I think it is no accident that it has happened now because we are seeing loss of habitat for animal species. So they are moving closer to humans making it easier to, for a leap like that to occur. And we're seeing a loss of biodiversity so that the number of species in the world are shrinking. Therefore, humans will run up against pathogen-carrying uh, other animals. We're, we're in one world together, and we share all of these things. And one of the reasons this is happening is climate change, which I'm sure will be a factor in generating the next pandemic. And so we need to stop arguing about climate change. And we need to really get down to business about fixing it. Uh, there's been a lot of talk. Uh, as you and I are talking now, they've just finished the uh, COP meeting in Egypt and <laughs> haven't really concluded all that much. They keep harkening back to the Paris um, agreements. And it's nice when the world makes these agreements, but I don't see the world... Uh, the world generating all that much activity to actually meet the targets that they have agreed are so important. And uh, I think that that is as big, if not bigger challenge than pandemic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, well, because well, we, we don't know that viruses uh, and bacteria don't stop at uh, the border. And uh, well, I wonder how the very recent news of uh, a kind of a so-called zombie virus that uh, just came out the uh, form the Siberian permafrost as a consequence of climate change. Will impact uh, the decisions of uh, of uh, politicians and uh, well uh, decision makers because we are just one step away from uh, a kind of uh, uh, science fiction apocalyptic movie featuring uh, a, a, a very deadly and very uh, unknown virus uh, spreading death uh, and uh, and desperation all over the world.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's a huge worry. It helps to bring home the point I'm trying to make about uh, there will be another pandemic. Uh, speaking of uh, permafrost, uh, we had a, a paleopathologist in Canada who was interested in excavating the bodies of people who had died of influenza back in 1918. Uh, they had been buried in Greenland and uh, he, was, he was a, a Toronto um, doctor. Uh, he, he went off to excavate the bodies and I remember before he left, people were very worried about him taking these bodies out of the permafrost because influenza is also not over. In Canada, we get our flu shots every year because we're anticipating the new mutant strain. We still have influenza. Biologically, it is not over. But what if thawing out those bodies was going to bring it all back so that aside from talking about a new virus or a new pathogen, the old ones could come back too. We're exactly. also still in we're also still in a plague pandemic and uh we we don't hear that much about it at the present time but uh biologically speaking you know they talk about the endings of pandemics uh there's a biological end a medical end a social end and uh biologically mostly they don't end sars uh the first uh coronavirus uh epidemic with sars it It did seem to end, that virus vanished and we don't know why. It would be wonderful if we could figure out why, Um, but they seem to continually be there. The medical response will have to continue to be there to respond to those who get sick. But the social ending is when people refuse to, to modify their behaviors, to account for it. Some of which might be justified. COVID now is not like COVID was in uh, 2020, we believe that the Omicron strains are not quite as lethal. They're certainly spread more rapidly and more easily, but they might not be quite as lethal. But it could also be because a large proportion of the world has been vaccinated with whatever vaccine they got in whatever country they were in. And uh, that definitely helps. That's something that uh, I, a message that just has not gotten out uh, to the people who are uh, concerned about the vaccines. Billions of doses of vaccines have been given. There are very few side effects from the vaccines. The major side effect being that it does protect against severe disease, it keeps the hospitals from being overwhelmed, it does save lives. And um, so the social ending of how severe should the lockdown and public health measures be has to be titrated against the activity of the virus at any given time. And I've noticed here in Canada that uh, public health officials know that we have an outbreak now of COVID compounded uh, with uh, respiratory syncytial virus in children, which is a, a severe respiratory disease in children, compounded with influenza. We have three epidemics going on right now in Canada. But all of the public health officials are strongly recommending masking, strongly recommending staying home, but they aren't mandating it because I think that they've learned during this pandemic that when they mandate it, it's like a hair trigger that invokes a a negative response and a a knee-jerk response to oppose it. Uh, But I don't know that strongly recommending is strong enough for what's going on right now
1: no this is uh, definitely something that uh, well uh i uh i don't know i was talking with my friends and families in uh, in europa where basically all the mm, uh, mandates uh, about uh, wearing masks uh, are have been uh, lifted and uh, people are still uh, wearing masks because uh, they say well well it's not that that uh, uh, it's not really a, a noise else it's something that uh, uh it's uh, tolerable, and uh, so why not? Better be prepared. Uh, and uh, well, I don't know. It's a kind of uh, distrust against towards governments, so It's just a uh, common sense
0: uh, uh, that uh, that uh, dictates this kind of uh, this kind of behavior. It's very strange. Um, I also wonder culturally about it. You know, it isn't a huge hardship to wear a mask, and I'm still wearing a mask when I go inside buildings, uh, but. Uh, Again, it's recommended, so lots of people don't wear masks because they aren't forced to do so, Uh, but it it, it seems a small gesture to put a little bit of cloth in front of your face, because you might protect somebody else, you might even protect yourself for, for, for that matter. Um, But culturally, it's interesting to me about uh, the mass mandates and recommendations and where they're accepted and where they're not. Uh, Because we have seen in Canada, and I know it has also happened in France and other countries, uh, objections to the face coverings that are worn by Islamic women. And uh, I think someday some graduate student will do an interesting study on uh, responses to mask mandates and mask recommendations in countries that are intolerant of Islamic women who choose to wear uh a face covering and uh that uh, that resonance is really fascinating to me um we have jurisdictions in Canada that have uh made laws against uh religious garb um but then they make a mass mandate <laughs> and how that gets reconciled socially politically and culturally is truly fascinating i i don't have any answers about it i just think that it's it it is a subliminal thing that might generate responses to masks i don't know if it does or not but it's it really fascinating
1: yeah, no, uh, absolutely, and especially because, well, uh, in uh, well, uh, I I think that uh, wearing wearing a mask, uh, well, it's kind of customary in uh, in uh, East Asia, in uh, China and Japan. Uh, yes, it's like uh, something that you do if you have uh, a cold, just
0: because uh, you don't want people because to get sick because you are sneezing. Yeah, uh, it's po- it's yeah. polite, and exactly. and the people who object to it and say it doesn't do anything. Um, then you suggest to them well if you need an operation would you like your doctor and your nurses not to wear a mask in the operating room it it's something that we have done in healthcare since the 19th century and and in fact they they did have equivalents of masks in managing plague it's 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 a reflex that has a kind of a logic to it and uh is it is it too much for somebody to do to help somebody else that's the thing it's about willingness to protect others. Absolutely. Um,
1: all right. So I finished uh, uh, my uh, interview with uh, well, a well a customary question. So, uh, what is uh, the next project uh, for uh, for you? Is there okay. any yeah? Is <laughs> is there any uh, topic you are currently working on? If you can um, disclose this information, of
0: course. Uh, yes, I'm. I'm collaborating with uh, some paleopathologists in England, uh, and they are bringing out a new edition of their book, "The Archaeology of Disease," and I'm helping them with the medical historical angle of that. Uh, so we're we're actually working on that right now. Beginning work on that right now. Uh, I have a few articles in press. Uh, one of them is generated by an online collaborative project I have to translate an early modern author. He was a doctor as well as a lawyer, and he worked for the Pope in Rome in the 17th century. And uh, what we are doing, it's it's like crowdsourcing a translation of his case records. And uh, I started doing this back in 2008. And uh, there are 85 of these cases, and scholars can volunteer to adopt one of the cases, and they can take as long as they want to translate it out of Latin into English. And uh, we're about a third of them have been completed, and more than half of them have been adopted. So it's coming. Uh, and uh, I have an article coming out about one of those cases, which is really interesting. It's about how one disease can cure another disease. And I I think that that's a fascinating concept that has has a long history, uh, but it's not something we see anymore because we have this sort of Pavlovian reflex to treat every disease when it comes along. So we don't wait to see if one disease can cure another disease. So that's an article that's coming out. And um, I keep working on the drug shortage problem here in Canada. Running an activist website about that, uh, I I thought when I started it it would be a year or two and we would solve it, and now it is twelve years later and it's still going. So I guess I will keep doing it as long as I'm able, or until it's solved. <laughs> That's that's really that's really great and uh, well uh,
1: I uh, I think that well uh, I'm really happy to, to discuss with you, uh, with you to have you as my host. It's uh, gave me gives me a lot of motivation as a historian of medicine to do something that uh, well it's not uh, just uh, meaningful for uh, uh, for academia and science but also it has a, a, a social meaning and uh, and uh, and an impact on on the uh, on people's uh, on people's uh, life.
0: Well, so, you're very. Well- you're very welcome i i yeah i i noticed also that you and i have a past we've both been to paris as strangers and (laughs) done our doctoral work there and uh it it's a wonderful place and i am always so grateful that i had that training and then could take it back to my own country and you are taking it even further
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jacqueline Duffin, for uh, for your time, for this uh, this uh, wonderful conversation, and uh, to our uh, our listener, uh, please uh, uh, enjoy COVID nineteen uh, a uh, history fascinating work uh, on uh, the history of the current pandemic. Thank you.